Yeah, Luke chapter 1, and this morning we're going to be looking at Gabriel's visit, primarily Gabriel's visit to Mary, beginning of verse 26. Now think about the last time that you were truly surprised by something, something good, something beyond your imagination. I want you to, to kind of rekindle afresh the Christmas story. It's very familiar to us. It's very difficult for us to kind of recapture the surprise and the wonder and like the praise and the joy of the shepherds that a Savior had been born. This, this celebration comes around once a year and I'm thankful for it. But again, the repeated pattern can mean it's so familiar that, it, that we just kind of go through the motions without reading carefully, without pondering, as Mary did, pondering these things, what they really meant. There's something absolutely astounding that happens in Luke chapter 1. Think about it. We take it as common, and I'm thankful we do, that the Lord has communicated to us through His Word, that His Holy Spirit works within us. But did you know there was a period of almost 400 years where God chose to give His people radio silence. Now they had his written word, don't get me wrong. The spirit was nonetheless still at work amongst his people, preserving a remnant of his people during that time. But there was no prophetic message for 400 years. And then God does something very unusual. He breaks that silence by sending an angel we can presume, we don't have to presume, we, we know that he's Gabriel because he tells us who he is, to a man named Zechariah. And this sets the scene for the next appearance. So look at that with me in Luke 1, beginning really at verse 12 is where we're going to pick things up. Now, remember, Zechariah's a priest, and he has been selected as the one that goes in and burns the incense offering. Zechariah is the high priest. He's not going into the Holy of Holies. That only happened once a year. This is the duty of a priest to go into the holy place and to kindle afresh the incense offering to the Lord God. That's his job. And he, he alone goes into that to, to burn the incense offering to Lord and our God. And while he does that, something very miraculous happens. Now, I would say that Zechariah was probably very surprised to be selected for this duty because there were many priests and only a few got to the privilege of actually going into the holy place and carrying out this duty. He was selected by lot. That was God's providence in directing Zacharias, uh, or Zechariah to this place at this particular time. And while he's in there offering this incense offering to the Lord, that incense offering is right near the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And right there next to the incense offering, an angel appears, breaking 400 years of silence. And he appears not to the high priest, but to Zechariah. Okay? Now think about that. The Lord shows up and he doesn't, he doesn't go to the, the king of Israel, who was a pagan, really. He doesn't go to the high priest, but he goes to 
a priest, kind of a common, lowly priest, but a priest selected for a very high task, nonetheless. Now, pick up, pick up, let's pick up the reading here in, in verse 12. Um, actually, in verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. It's a pretty common experience when you really see an angel. Um, don't believe anything that anybody says about seeing an angel and coming away unchanged or unfearful. Because when you're in the presence of a holy angel, they emanate the holiness of God, and you as a sinner will be very fearful. It is a almost universal response. But the angel says to them, "Do not," said to, to Zechariah, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah." For your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will call his name John. So we get a little hint as to, okay, Zechariah was in there praying. The incense, it represents prayer. He was praying for Israel, but he was also doing what? He's been praying for his wife. Why? Because his wife was barren. And in those times in Israel, for a wife to be barren, a woman to be barren was a sign of disgrace. Now, that's not true. That's just That was the cultural understanding. And he was praying for his wife. And the Lord chose to answer that prayer in a very miraculous way. The angel said to him, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, when kings of old would go into a land, before they would travel, they would send a forerunner to prepare the way, to announce the king is coming and to help the people prepare the road, and sometimes when the road was rocky or too too steep or not level enough, they would they would flatten the road and make it appropriate for the king to come in. He'd have an easy ride in. Right? So this is the role of John the Baptist. Right? What what a miraculous thought! Not only does the angel appear to Zechariah again, you would say almost a nameless priest. If this were not to happen, you would not ever know about Zechariah. God chose him in a specific time in a surprising way for a surprising answer to his prayer. He just wanted a son. God gave him a, a miraculous son in the sense that John the Baptist would be the forerunner of the Lord. Now, when you hear the word the Lord in the New Testament text, it's, it's used often to talk about you like in the sense of master. And you'll see it used that way in the text. But Sometimes, and I would say maybe more than sometimes, frequently, the term Lord is used in the same way as the Old Testament term Yahweh, right? God, the, the, the reference of the Lord. You know, in the Old Testament, when you read the Lord and it's all in capital letters, that's representative of the fact that's the Hebrew word name for God, Yahweh. So, Gabriel is telling Zechariah that his son is going to be preparing not just Lord as, as in master, but Lord as in Yahweh is coming. That's the message that the 
Israelites had been waiting for for many years, hundreds of years. The Messiah, the Messiah is finally coming and my son is going to be the forerunner to that. Think about the surprise of Zechariah. Well, he, he certainly was surprised. He was shocked, in fact. And the message was so surprising that Zechariah had a little bit of doubt. And we read about that in the text. He said to the, Zechariah said to the angel, how will I know this? Wrong question. Wrong question. He just told you. When God tells you something, you believe it. Now, we're going to see, you're going to contrast this with Mary's question later. She asks a question, but with different motivation behind it. Zechariah is saying, how will I know this for sure? What is he asking for? He's asking for a sign. He's not, it's not enough that an angel showed up and told you this is going to happen. You want a sign. So again, don't, don't, we're not going to be too hard on Zechariah. Many of us would, would respond in a very similar fashion, but it is, it is a response based out of some doubt. And Gabriel responds that way. Because he says, I'm an old man and my wife's advanced in years. The angels answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands before God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. You see, the problem wasn't, back up and say the problem was that Zechariah didn't believe the message of the angel to a certain extent. And nonetheless, this is God's plan. It's not, his unbelief isn't going to change God's plan. God's plan is going to move forward. But Gabriel responds with a bit of a rebuke because Zechariah responded in unbelief. Now, why does Luke tell us all this? Why does he go into this detail? Number one, to help us to see the really the, the orchestrated appearance of John the Baptist and preparing the way for the Messiah. But Luke is also going to tell us about the second occurrence of Gabriel. And he's going to be drawing a little bit of a contrast. He wants you, the reader, to draw a contrast between the, the message of Gabriel to um, the message of Gabriel to Zechariah and his response of unbelief, and the, the message of Gabriel to Mary and her response of belief. Who had the greater who was given the more surprising message? This is the contrast we want to want to play with a little bit. We want to see it. The author is doing this. Luke is doing this intentionally. The Lord God came to a relatively common priest, but the priest is in the holy place. He's in the temple. He's in Jerusalem on um, Mount Zion. That's where you would expect God to appear. If an angel was going to appear there, it should be there. And yet he responds, I believe. But then Gabriel appears somewhere where no one would ever expect an angel to show up. Nazareth. I said it that way intentionally. Nazareth. That's the city on the other side of the train tracks, 
or wherever. Every city has that. You know, if you're from that side of the town. Nothing. Nathaniel said it. One of Jesus' own disciples said, does anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it was like common knowledge. And then not only does Gabriel show up in Nazareth, which, by the way, is in Galilee, so not in Jerusalem, not even in Judea, right? It's in Galilee. And he shows up there, but he shows up to whom? Mary. A young girl. A young girl. Really, we would never know about Mary if this wasn't her lot. She's nobody special from a human standpoint. She hasn't earned any high status to be able to earn this appearance from Gabriel. And yet she responds with faith. This is, this is the surprising or shocking nature of what the Gospel of Luke is, is really showing us with this. I mean, who had the greater message to believe? Think about that. I mean, Zachariah was an old man and his wife was old, implying she may have been beyond the normal birthing years. Right? That's what, that's what happened. But, but we understand a husband and wife and biology happens and the Lord just recreated uh, within her to be able to conceive. It's not that difficult for God. But on the other hand, and, and by the way, there, there was biblical precedent for that, is there not? Of God opening the wombs of women who are barren in the Old Testament? There's biblical precedence, precedence for that. But what about Mary? And the message that, she, that the Gabriel is going to give her? That she's going to conceive in her womb without a man? What message is harder to believe? And yet, she does. Now, this morning, the main, the main, I guess, stimulus that I want to, I want you to think about is that we are to respond in faith to the revelation that is given to us. You need to respond to the revelation that is given to you that you would glorify God by embracing your Redeemer, King Jesus Christ. And when I say the revelation, I don't mean that an angel is going to appear to you and give you a new revelation. That's not the case at all. But the revelation in the Word of God. How do we respond to this when we read these things? Well, I've told you a little bit, and you're familiar with this, the account of Gabriel appearing to Mary, but let's just read it together, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. Or let's look at, to begin with at the circumstances of the message. Let's just understand the context and what's going on. This, the source of the message is God. As I, as I mentioned, God has broken the prophetic silence. Uh, we're told that it, in verse 26, Gabriel was sent from God. Gabriel's not out doing his own mission. He was sent by God with a specific message for this young lady. The deliverer of the message is Gabriel. Uh, in delivering the message to Zacharias, Gabriel didn't give Zacharias his name until later. Here we are, we are told uh, of right in the start by the author of Luke that this is Gabriel coming to, um, to Mary. Now, Gabriel is one of two, na- two angels that are named in, in Scripture. He delivered the message to Zechariah. But Daniel, uh, sorry, Gabriel is not a new, uh, not new in the block. He's not a young guy. He is the one that presented, presented messages to Daniel. So you can look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 16, Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. He was the angel that brought messages from God to the prophet Daniel. So this is one of one of Gabriel's uh, privileges, one of his responsibilities, is to deliver special messages from God. He must be a very special and privileged angel. At the same time, very humble that his privileges not lead him astray um, from worshiping the one true God. The timing of the message in the beginning, now in the sixth month. So when did when did Gabriel appear? We have a six month span of time between when Elizabeth gets pregnant and when Gabriel appears to Mary. That's the span. That's what uh, we're to understand. That the place of the message, as I mentioned, is is Nazareth, a city in Galilee. Again, it's an unexpected place. It's a nothing town. There is the the. Um, the scribes and the Pharisees would mistakenly say that there are no prophets that come from Galilee, especially from Nazareth. They were a little bit wrong on that account, but that's what they thought. Um, and who is the recipient of the marriage of the uh, of the not the marriage uh, recipient of the message, and that is Mary. But it's interesting that that the author doesn't give us her name initially. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man. We're given her condition before we're given her name. And the reason for that is because that plays an important part of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This this would be a non-story if she wasn't a virgin. Because we all understand where babies come from. The fact that she is a virgin, and the term here does mean, it means a young woman of marriageable age who has not known a man. And, and Mary even confesses that the fact that she has not known a man. That's what she's so, one of the reasons she's so perplexed. Kind of, It's kind of interesting. She doesn't ask any questions about the, 
the prophecies concerning the Christ, what her what her her question relies around is, how am I going to get pregnant if I don't know a man? That was the essence of her question. So the account that that we're told here reinforces a central doctrine, uh, central doctrine of the Christian Church, and that is that Mary was a virgin when she conceived, and that Jesus was was born of of a virgin. Now I will just say here that that there that the scriptures are clear that Mary was a virgin until her first born son. Until Jesus was born. The Gospel of Matthew tells us this, and I'll just read that. Gospel uh, Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Until. Right? That implies that after that, Joseph and Mary had a normal family relationship. And we're actually told in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' brothers. These aren't cousins, these are brothers. There's a different Greek term used for cousins. This is, these, are, these are brothers. And he may have had uh, half-sisters as well. The claim that Mary made some kind of perpetual vow of virginity has no scriptural support. It also has no support in the first century. So if you want to look at church history, go back far enough into the first century, those who would have known Mary, there's no claim for this. The claim only appears later in history. But it is without biblical warrant. The point, again, it, that Luke is trying to, to help us see is that this young lady would become pregnant without a man. And in fact, without this, right, uh, without this, w- the biblical idea of a savior kind of gets washed down. It is critical that Jesus be fully God and fully man, and that requires a virgin conception. Now, the text here also tells us that not only was she a virgin, but she was betrothed. Betrothed. That's similar to our engagement, but also different in in important ways. In the Jewish culture at that time, young women could become betrothed as at uh, puberty. And that means they could become betrothed as early as 12 or 13 or 14. We don't know Mary's exact age, but she was a, a young woman. Now, Jewish betrothal lasted a year. Betrothal means that Joseph would have paid some kind of uh, dowry uh, to Mary's parents, and they would have been engaged and betrothed. They're treated like they're married. If they wanted to break off that that betrothal, it would require something like a divorce. That's how serious the betrothal was. It was a time of testing. Uh, they were not living together. They would live separately with, with their respective parents. But uh, they were legally married during that time. So she was betrothed to Joseph. Now what we're told about Joseph is his name. But we're also told something important that, that factors into the prophecy that, that Gabriel is going to tell us. He was of the house of David. So Joseph, though he would not be the father, the, the biological father of Jesus, is from the house of David. And that's important because Jesus would be legally adopted by uh, by Joseph and inherit the right to the throne of his father, David. So we're also told that Mary was a recipient of God's grace. Right? You notice what, what 
what the angel says to her. He says to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now the word greetings, it's actually a command to rejoice. The angel is telling her, rejoice in, in his greetings. He's not coming with any kind of message of doom and gloom and judgment. He's coming with a very encouraging message. And he describes her as favored one. Now, this is an adjective describing someone who has received favor or grace. Now, in the way we use the term favor, it's we don't use it really in the biblical way. You, you might ask, hey, can you do me a favor and go do this and do that? But it, and sometimes it's implied that, hey, you owe me a favor, so you need to you need to give me this favor. But understand that really the biblical understanding of favor is that of grace. Someone who has received grace. It, grace cannot, cannot be earned. It is something that is given. So I emphasize these things because the Catholic Church has so distorted the person of Mary and understands of who she is that we need to go back to the text and see the text. She is favored. She is a an ambassador of, of God of sorts. Um, but she is a, cho- she is a chosen uh, woman to bear Jesus. Okay? But she did not earn that position. That's the emphasis I want to make here. That the, f- the favor or grace that Mary received was not anything that she earned. Because if it's something that's earned, then grace ceases to be grace. You see, when you go, when you go to work, you expect to get paid because you went to work. It's what it's what owed you. If Mary had done something to earn a position of favor with God, then it would no longer be favor. It would no longer be grace, but what she had earned. So it's it's completely um, outside of Scripture to say that Mary somehow had enough, so much grace that God just poured out upon her, um, and somehow earned her uh, status as the mother of Jesus. That's simply not true. Now, in, in talking about Mary, just we just have to establish that Mary, again, is a was a lovely woman. You will meet her in heaven. She was given a very high privilege. And, and for that, she is honored, and we should honor her, but not pray to her. She's only human. Right now, she's in heaven. And as a human being in heaven, she cannot hear your prayers. She's not omnipresent. That's one of the doctrines that the Catholic Church um, is so misguided about, uh, to say the least. But the saints who are in heaven cannot hear your prayers. They are human beings. They do not somehow take on a semi-godlike status and to be able to hear your prayers no matter where you're at. You have a high priest that can hear your prayer, and his name is Jesus Christ, and pray to him. Also understand that when um, Mary received this, she, she was a sinner. She wasn't somebody who um, who was without sin. There's another era of the Catholic Church called the Immaculate Conception, and they're not talking about Jesus' conception, they're talking about Mary's. That somehow she was preserved from sin. That's just simply not true. If that were the case, then Mary would be, what she would be receiving in the in the holy child and burying the holy child, that would be something that, that she earned in a sense. And in fact, if we just listen to Mary just for a minute, and this is a bit of a rabbit trail, 
But just listen to a minute, Mary's own words and, and what uh, she says in her um, Magnificat, as, as they call it. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, this is after she meets with Elizabeth, after she conceives, uh, Jesus is conceived within her. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my what? My Savior, thank you. My Savior. Only sinners need a Savior. So Mary herself will tell you in her own words that she was a sinner in need of salvation. And yet in many places, she is elevated to the same status of Christ. That does a great disgrace and disservice to Mary. She exalts the Savior. She does not want to be used to somehow take attention away from Savior, but to reflect and give attention to the Savior. Just listen to her own words. But again, the, the Gabriel tells her that she's, the, she's favored, and she is. And he, and he goes on to tell her, for the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. That is a wonderful blessing of God. To be told that you have peace with God, that he is with you. It ultimately, that, that echoes into the, the mean of Jesus, of who Jesus is, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. The fact that God would come and be with his people was a great comfort to them. If God was, is with them, they would not have fear. They would have peace. They would have everything provided for them that they needed. They would be rescued. So the fact that God, the message was, the Lord is with you, was a great comfort to Mary, although she didn't understand everything that, that Gabriel was telling her. And Gabriel also said, you have found favor with God. Again, favor is a grace gift. Mary did not earn. And you will find, if you go and read other books outside of Scripture, there are apocryphal writings that talk about how Mary was dedicated um, uh, at a very young age to the Lord, that she lived in the temple, that she uh, made some kind of perpetual vow of virginity. All that is is outside of Scripture. In fact, it's contrary to the very point that Luke is making. Grace, favor. That's the emphasis of what Luke is telling us. God appeared to this woman who didn't deserve this, but nonetheless, God appeared to her, chose her from amongst many women, many young women. And she was a godly woman or else God wouldn't have chosen her. But she wasn't sinless. She received an unspeakable surprise. Now, what else do we learn about Mary? Again, we're just setting the circumstances. Mary was a very humble and thinking woman. Again, look at Mary's response. When the angel showed up to tell her this great message, she's like, oh, I was expecting you. It's about time you got here. Hey, no. Says what? She's perplexed. I mean, she doesn't quite understand. She doesn't quite understand. But the next phrase is she is pondering these things. And that's also what she did when the shepherds came and told her about all the wonderful things they had heard about the appearance of the angels. She pondered these things in her heart. She was a thinking woman. In addition to a woman who worshipped the Lord, a woman of faith, she pondered what it meant. And she's also pondering the message. She asked that for clarification. 
this isn't a question of doubt, but when she's told that she'll conceive, she's wondering how that can be. And this applies that Mary expects this to be soon. Mary understands that this isn't Gabriel showing up and saying, uh, I know you're betrothed to Joseph and you know, in, in a year or so, you're going to bear a son, the two of you, and you're going to call his name Jesus. So the implication is this, this conception is going to happen soon. And Mary understands that she hasn't known a man. And so she simply asks Gabriel for some clarification. Like, how, how is this going to work? And, and God graciously motivates Gabriel to give her the answer to that. Gabriel tells her that, that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her. And she, how does she respond? Okay, let it be according to your word. I mean, think of that girl's world. She would be accused of being an adulteress. In fact, that's what Joseph initially thought. But an angel appeared to Joseph and told him, no, no, Joseph, that's not what's going on here. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife or what the, the child that is within her is, is of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph listened to the angel. And, I, and that was a dream. Gabriel didn't even show up yet. Joseph listened. But think about how the little girl's world was rocked. She would free, be forever carry the stigma of what people would thought was an ounce of wedlock pregnancy. It's not the case. But that's what the community would say. But that's okay. She just said, let it be done to me according to your word. Oh, that we would have such faith just to listen to the word of God and walk in obedience to the word of God. There's some things, before we move on, there's some highlights, some theological truths I want to draw out. First of all, the Lord is the one who initiates the plan of redemption. This is his doing. For the very start, he sends Gabriel to produce, to, to deliver this message. He's the one that initiates uh, Mary's conception to bring forth the Messiah. Secondly, God grants grace to the undeserving. That's one of the main themes in this passage is God grants grace to the undeserving. God uses the lowly and unexpected. And that's a pattern throughout Scripture. And Paul later would say there aren't many mighty, there aren't many noble, there aren't many wise. But God uses the despised things of the world to shame the things that are wise. God expects, also, God expects us to believe and to submit to his revealed word. Well, these are the circumstances of the message. Let's look at the reason of the message. The reason of the message. God wanted Mary to know what was going to going to go on in her. Can you imagine if Gabriel hadn't been sent and all this is going on and all of a sudden Mary finds herself pregnant and she has no idea what's going on? God graciously needed to send a very special message to this, this young girl to tell her what was going on and the significance of what was going on. Uh, so the reason of the message is very important. She will conceive in her womb. She will bear a son. And it's important that she would know to name him Jesus. Now, it's interesting here that when Gabriel tells Mary that they will name him, you shall call his name Jesus, he doesn't elaborate on the meaning of the name like he does with Matthew. In Matthew, he tells, uh, he tells Joseph that you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from his sins. So it kind of tells the meaning of the name, right? So the New Testament 
the name of Jesus is very similar to Joshua, which is God saves. He will save his people from their sins. But, but here, Luke, he doesn't do that. And in part, I think, because he wants to emphasize uh, not the Savior, not Jesus as Savior, but Jesus as King, which we'll see about in a moment. So the name of Jesus does mean God saves. So there's no doubt an emphasis uh, on uh, the fact that Jesus is a Savior. We're not, I'm not trying to, to um, um, somehow discount that. But the point here is that Gabriel is going to tell Mary some very important things about this child that relate to his role as Redeemer, but more so in his role as King. Uh, in Lord Jesus, the Redeemer and King, his offices unite together as well as prophet and, and priest. So Gabriel doesn't provide meaning on his name Jesus, but, but again, I think there's a reason for that. Now, in light of Mary's question, Gabriel provides this additional information. So she's, she's wondering, how, do I, how is this going to happen? He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, remember that in this stage of redemptive history, Yahweh doesn't have a, a body. Jesus is not yet incarnate. Um, so this is not a description of God physically violating Mary like you would get in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, the gods come down and have a child with a lady and there's a demigod and all that goes on. That's Greek mythology, right? And a lot of other... Uh, weird things going on. That, that's not what's going on here. So the imagery is that of the, the powerful God hovering, overshadowing. What does that remind you of? Genesis. Genesis 1. Genesis 1 to 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. It was His creative power that began everything that is. Okay, so I think there's a there's a um, a link that the author is drawing us to, and Gabriel is drawing us to, to see Genesis that here the Holy Spirit would hover over Mary, would over overpower or overwhelm her, and create through the power of God what was needed for her to conceive. Okay? Just as God said, "Let there be light," and there was light, He said. You know, let, let there be what is needed for her to conceive and created what is needed for her to conceive a child born of her contribution of the uh, biology part of that, a God creating what was needed the remainder of that for conception. God wanted Mary to know what was going on. He's compassionate in that way. And God wanted her to know the origin of the son she would bear, that he would be the son of God. Not just her son, the son of God. And the only way for Mary to know this was for Gabriel to tell him. Now, all this might seem plain, but there are many people who reject it. Do you believe in the virgin conception of Jesus Christ? It is a key cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. You cannot reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and remain within orthodoxy, Christian orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right or correct belief. If, if Jesus was born of a human father, then he is not God. And if he is not God, then his death on the cross did not have infinite merit to pay for our sins. And if our sins are not paid for, then we are still in our sins and we are without hope. That's how serious 
the incarnation is, the, the belief that, uh, that, that Christ was born of a virgin. Many people today reject that. And they don't, re- they don't, it's not that they, um, don't understand how it could happen. None of us can understand how it happens. Right? Which one of you can explain that? That a virgin be born and, you know, the, the critic and the atheist will say, yeah, 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 sure, just another out of wedlock pregnancy. That's not what's going on here. The word of God is very clear to us. We'll believe it and accept it and embrace it. And, and someone might say, well, if, if I could just see a sign, I might believe. Right? Oh, there's there's that, that doubt and unbelief again showing up. You know what Jesus said to those who are seeking a sign? He, said, he said, even if an angel from heaven, even if someone from heaven, maybe not an angel, we'll say someone who died. We don't have to get fancy and send an angel. Someone who died, just, just send them back, Lord. If you send someone who, who died, send them back and, and talk to, to people on earth, then they'll believe. But Jesus says, now even, even if someone from heaven came back, someone who died came back and, and appeared before, before an unbeliever, the unbeliever would, would have doubts. If you will not believe the word of God, you will not believe any sign. So believe the word of God. So we looked at the circumstance of the message, the reason of the message. I'd examine the focus of the message, of Christ himself. What information does, does Gabriel give Mary about this son? The child will be called Jesus. And we've talked about that. He will be our Savior. We can't make, a, we can't make enough about that. We can't say enough about that. Jesus is the Savior. There is no, no one else through which redemption um, is had. No other way to Christ. No, I mean, no other way to the Father, but through Christ. Redemption is an essential activity of the long-awaited Messiah. He would redeem his people from their sins. But the child would also be fully human. He'll be conceived in Mary's womb. And because of that fact, the scripture, Gabriel says that the child will be holy. It's a holy child. The holy not only meaning sinless, but the holy meaning other-like. He's, he is, that, in fact, God. And so not only must as Christians, though, see hold to the fact that Jesus was conceived of a, of a virgin, but we must also hold the fact that he was fully man and fully God. Again, we, we, we were butting up against things that we cannot fully understand, but they're clearly taught in the Scriptures. You see, if, if Jesus is not fully man, then, then he can't be our representative. If there's some kind of conf, uh, some kind of mixing of God and man and creating like a demigod, then he's neither God nor man. He can't be our representative and die for our sins. But if he's not fully God, then his death doesn't have infinite merit. And he can't, he can't pay for everyone's sins who would ever believe in him. So the child would be holy. The child will be great. Verse 32. That's where Gabriel starts. He will be great. Now we use that word in a kind of a nonchalant way. We don't even use it like, oh great. You know, it's like a bad thing almost. Got another flat tire. Well, that's not how he's using the term here. 
The term great is, is the adjective of the Greek word mega. We use that, right? Mega, and something's really important, mega. Well, this, this kind of adjective is used all by itself. That was, this adjective was used with John the Baptist and Gabriel's message. He says that the child, I'm talking to Zechariah, the child will be great in the sight of the Lord. There's a qualifier. John the Baptist would be great in the sight of the Lord. And, and we know that Jesus would say there's no greater man no, no, no greater man that ever lived on the face of the earth than John the Baptist. But Jesus is even greater than John the Baptist. The son born to Mary would be would be great. Uh, the term it, it, the term points to being uh, superior in importance. The, the greatness of the child is further explained to us in the terms that he's used next. The child will be called the son of the Most High. Now, the term the Most High refers to God. It's another descriptor of God. The Most High. He is the one who reigns above, reigns in heavens. He does whatever he pleases. No one can thwart his plans. That's why he's called the Most High. So this son will be called the Son of the Most High. Okay, all right. Leading, that's leading to where he's going next. In his next descriptor, what else are we told about the child? Well, before we get there, let me just say that most of the time in the Christmas story, we kind of move very quickly from this to Mary's pondering about how these things could be. As I read through commentaries, most of the commentaries stop commentating at this stage. He'll be great. He'll be the son of the Most High. And these things are true. Hey, I, I, I say that because they can be so old hat. We're like, oh, yeah. No, this is the Son of the Most High. God of God. Come to earth to be our Savior. But listen to what he says next. Again, this is, I think, describing his greatness. This child will be given a throne. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And the child will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. The child will be given a throne. This is a reiteration of the promise that God gave to David, called the Davidic covenant. He promised David a son from his loins who would reign forever. I know that wasn't Solomon. Solomon didn't reign forever. This is that son. Jesus is that son who fulfills the Davidic promise, which you find in 1 Samuel 7. We'll take the time to, to look there uh, right now, but you can, you can jot it down. Look there later. 1 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 13. This is the Lord's promise. And Gabriel is pointing that out to Mary. Mary, that's why the connection, that's why he mentions Joseph being from the house of David. So, he will reign. He, he, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, the term father there, some, some might misunderstand. The term father can be used just to speak of general lineage. That's what he's saying. Jesus wasn't born of David, but, but he was born in that line. He was legally the son of Joseph. And you can also trace, if you trace Mary's lineage, you can also trace her lineage back to David as well through Nathan. Right? Whereas Joseph's lineage goes back through Solomon. 
Actually, two different ways Jesus can make a claim to the throne. But it's through the Father that the, that the Son inherits the right to rule. And that's why this is pointed out. So he will, he will have the throne of his father, David. And, and notice, he says, he, this emphasis on this. He will reign over the house of Jacob. That's another word for Israel. And there will be no end to his kingdom. No end to his kingdom. We somehow skip over that in the Christmas story. We're not talking about just a a baby. And we're not just talking about a redeemer. We're talking about a redeemer king. And I want you to think too, a a little bit here, on what, what this means. The importance and significance of this. We take the first part of the verse, literally, that he'll be great, that he will be son of the most high. No one debates that. We take that literally. But then somehow, many, when they start reading the second part of verse 32 into verse 33, we start doing funny things with our interpretation. We start spiritualizing. Now, we don't have time to get into all the, all the, this means and the depth of it, but it is pointing us to understand that Jesus' role as redeemer is very much tied to his role as king of a Davidic-type kingdom. And this, this is not a heavenly kingdom. I mean, Jesus, in fact, the second person of the Trinity, before he became incarnate, was king. He was Yahweh. He ruled over all. So to say that this verse is simply applying that Jesus is reigning from a heavenly Davidic throne does injustice to the text. Why is Gabriel pointing to David? What important is David if it's not on earth? It is extremely important. There's emphasis about this, not only in 1 Samuel, but in Psalm 89. You can turn there. Again, I won't take time to turn there, but it's very important. God considers it important that he keep his word to produce a son who would reign forever. This is the kingdom. The kingdom that is mentioned here in, by Gabriel is the kingdom that's, that Gabriel mentioned. That, uh, uh, sorry, that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 2. Verse 44, I'll just read that. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will be not left, uh, will be, sorry, will not left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself stand forever. So the kingdom of Luke, of Gabriel, Luke 2, that Gabriel gives us in Luke 2, is the same kingdom of Daniel 2.44. It's the same kingdom of Daniel 7. Verses 13 and 14. And here Daniel uh, gives us an account of that. He says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came upon the ancient of days and he came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is is one. One which will not be destroyed. And then again in seven, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses uh, 23 through 27, reiterate this. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. That's what Gabriel's pointing to. So consider the clarity of Gabriel's message concerning Christ. 
I think far too many Christians have not given this passage the the attention it deserves in their theology and their understanding of end times. So this is referring to an intermediate kingdom that Christ rule as head over Israel prior to the eternal state. We, we know or recall this, the millennium from the book of Revelation, given further definition there. Gabriel's just hinting at that here. Now the reference to Jesus' earthly future kingdom in Luke 1 verses 22, 32 and 33 um, just can't be spiritualized away. There's, there's not justification for saying that, that Christ is now ruling on David's throne in heaven. It, it does injustice to, the, to every text, every promise given to David about that. But I want you to see something else. That this kingdom is given to Jesus by his father. Look at Luke. Verse 32. The Lord God. Who is that? Yahweh. That's the Father. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to do it. He's not waiting on people here on earth, Christians on earth, to create a kingdom and somehow give that kingdom back to Christ. So I know I'm stepping on the toes of you who are millennialists, and now I've stepped on the toes of you who are post-millennials. <laughs> know that I love you dearly. I'm not importing this to the text I'm asking you to wrestle with the text hear what the text says Gabriel who has a message from God is saying that Christ is going to rule on his father's throne and that kingdom will be established forever he will rule forever don't don't believe me just because I say something Take it to the Word of God. Read it. Listen. But whatever it says, right? Embrace it with all of your heart. Don't don't doubt. Don't hold back. Know that I'm saying these things in love and because I want to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Now you might be thinking, well, I thought Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. Well, yeah, he did say that says that in the Gospel of John. But what's the context there? Well, he's talking to Pilate. And Pilate's accusing him, saying, aren't you a king? Aren't you a king? And Jesus says, well, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting. Not fighting necessarily Rome, but his context implies fighting the Jews. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying that the source of the authority of his kingdom was not of the world. Jesus didn't need to fight in order to be king. He was king. And his mission was to die for the sins of the world, so he was not going to fight that. But but don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Jesus, All Jesus was telling Pilate was like, you think you're the ruling king and you have authority to do this or that. You have no authority. My kingdom is not of this world. My servants do not need to fight. My kingdom is secure. The source of my authority is from above, from the Father. And no one can take that from me. But don't misunderstand Jesus' words to think that it's not a physical, earthly, Davidic kingdom. Because Gabriel says otherwise. Now, now hear how 
J.C. Ryle explained this to his church. Here's an Anglican bishop, okay, explaining this text to his congregation. The Lord shall give him up, sorry, the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. That's He's talking about the passage in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Says Gabriel, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. The literal fulfillment of this part of the promise is yet to come. Israel is yet to be gathered. The Jews are yet to be restored to their own land. Uh, for those that don't know J.C. Ryle, he lived in the 1800s, died in 1900. So that gives you a little period of time. Israel was not a nation then, so that's why he wrote that. He said they are yet to be restored to their own land and to look to him who, who they once pierced as their king and their God. Though the accomplishment of this prediction tarries, we may confidently wait for it. It shall surely come one day, <clears throat> excuse me, it shall surely come one day and, and not tarry. And this explains the greatness of our God, of our Lord and our Savior. He will not only save us from our sins, but he will rule in a perfect kingdom, a kingdom where, where peace is established, where long longevity is, is a way of life. If someone dies at 100 years old, there's going to be a problem with that person. It's going to be assumed that there's a problem with that person. This Messiah, <clears throat> excuse me, this, this Messiah was given to us to reign over us. Here are the familiar words of Isaiah chapter 9. Verses 6 and 7, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of, a, of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Oh, dear beloved, see your Lord and your God. And, and if you are this morning are here and don't know this Lord and God, see him, believe in him, that he came to die for your sins. And you too can have newness of life, can have the forgiveness of sins and be welcomed into his kingdom if you will just but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was conceived by a virgin and that he lived as a perfect man that he died in the, on, the, on the cross for your sins, and that he was raised in newness of life and can give eternal life to whomever seeks it from him. If you will but believe in him, even today can be the day of your salvation. Hear Gabriel's message. This Lord God, that he is great. That's the focus of Gabriel's message. That the Lord God, our Christ, is great. Again, behold your king. Behold your God. Behold the surprising Christmas child. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the joy and part of Christmas. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we praise and exalt you. That the plan of redemption and 
of a coming king and of a Messiah, a Redeemer, the Christ. That's all you orchestrating these details together for your glory and for our good. Oh God, this Christmas, help us to just keep you at the foremost of our lives in worship. Especially, no matter what we're doing, day in and day out, 24-7, but especially Christmas Eve and uh, Christmas Day, so we think about the wonder of this child who was born a king, who was given to redeem us and save us from our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for being our redeemer. Lord, lead us and guide us and shepherd us as we seek to walk in this life for your glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.